0: be great if you could leave your Bibles uh, open to that passage. We won't have time to look at all the complexity of metaphor and argument there, but uh, it's important that we follow. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, please, by your Spirit, continue to use your word to renew our minds and change our allegiances and turn our affections in a greater way to your son and his kingdom. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, For those who don't know me. By the way, I'm uh, Ray from Warrigal Prezi. I uh, co-pastor with Steve there. There have been some really good developments recently in thinking about uh, pastoral care and how the Bible can be better utilised in the sometimes complex nature of people's lives, and uh, particularly by an organisation called the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation in America, which has an Australian manifestation, uh, Biblical Counseling Australia. And one of the significant authors uh, in America, Ed Welch, has written a book called When People Are, Are Big and God Is Small. So in our thinking, people can be enormous, their opinions can govern us, but God is small in our minds and our thinking. And in this book, one issue that he addresses is how we deal with the sometimes crippling paralysis people have due to fearing our culture, fearing how people talk about believers in such a hostile uh, way and sometimes this causes silence and inactivity and other manifestations of fear and surprise surprise this is not a new thing uh, the exiles the jewish exiles in babylon had some of these sorts of issues going on they they were crippled by fear of the surrounding peoples And so we need to remember again that the essential background to this part of the Bible, Isaiah 40 to 55, is the exile of the southern kingdom of Israel to Babylon in 536 BC. Now, as you could imagine, put yourself in their shoes, this exile to Babylon caused a massive crisis of faith. Uh, for Judah and the people of Jerusalem, in the face of the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, the removal of the people from the promised land, and the decimation of the house of David, how can yahweh 's purpose to rule the world through the Davidic king and bring blessing to the world through abraham 's offspring? How can that be taken seriously anymore? It seems to be in tatters, it seems that God's word has in fact failed. One of the problems facing Israel too is the argument that the gods of Babylon are more powerful and wise than Yahweh, the God of Israel. Otherwise, how could Israel end up in Babylonian exile? See, in many people's minds, this is the only reasonable explanation. That Yahweh lacks power and faithfulness and wisdom and he's not the God that he claimed to be. He may have achieved the exodus from Egypt but that was centuries ago, that's history. So Isaiah 40 to 55 is written for the benefit of those in Babylonian exile to demonstrate why the exile happened and to present the way forward for them. Uh, And this way forward is that there will be a new exodus from their slavery. In the original exodus, Yahweh saved Israel from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. Now he's going to do it a second time. But this time his means of doing it will be the pagan Persian king Cyrus. But the question that we're left with and that Isaiah really wants to address is did the exile change anything? Are Israel fundamentally changed by this covenant discipline of exile to Babylon? What sort of Israel will return to Jerusalem? will the promise of a glorious second exodus elicit a faithful response from the people? So at one level, Cyrus the Persian will bring about this new exodus in the sense that he will deliver them from Babylon, return them to the land physically, but that is not the main problem. The main problem is that Israel, as God's servant, are still blind and deaf and committed to human wisdom and are unbelieving in Yahweh and his word. And that's always been the problem. And for this problem or slavery, someone much more than Cyrus is needed. And so we have been introduced to this ambiguous figure in these chapters, which Steve would have drawn to your attention again last week. And this figure is the servant of Yahweh, otherwise known as the suffering servant, who is portrayed as Israel, but as Israel should have been. And this passage today is sandwiched between the final two of the four servant songs. And so the final verse of chapter 50 is quite telling uh, concerning the state of Israel. It says, if you want to walk by the light of your own fires, then be prepared to be burnt by those fires. That is, if you prefer the light of idolatry and its sacrifices then you'll reap what you've sown. The gods you have chosen will be your reward. Now, the popular Irish band, U2, one of their most well-known songs, One, has a great phrase in it. It's not about idolatry, but it could be. It says this, Did I ask too much, more than a lot? You gave me nothing now it's all I've got. That's idolatry. That's what happens when we forsake Yahweh and turn to gods of the imagination. So now chapter 51 verses 1 to 8 contrast with those who light their own fires, who make up their own gods. And now this chapter begins by addressing a believing remnant which is evident in the first phrase, hear me you who pursue righteousness, you who seek Yahweh. And this phrase hear or listen takes us back to the original covenant God made with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy, Israel are told, hear O Israel, Yahweh your God is one. So what should these those exiled believers do? Well, they're told here, look back to where you came from in the first place. The origin of your existence as God's people, still verse 1. They should look back to Abraham, their forefather. Remember, they feel like a vulnerable and despised minority whose existence is in Babylon is precarious. So they should remember that Abraham was one old man and Sarah apparently way beyond childbearing and God made this promise that he would be many and he made this promise against the backdrop of the original Babylon, the Tower of Babel. Abraham was the answer to humanity uniting against Yahweh as they spiralled downward in their sinfulness. Yahweh would create one nation of people who would uh, believe and trust in him. And God did make Abraham many. And verse 3, Yahweh is going to restore Zion again such that it will be as Eden, the original holy place where he dwelled with his people. So Yahweh has done all this before, he's quite capable of doing it again. And we see verses 4 to 6, the goal of all of this, because there's a much bigger picture at stake here, the goal is true and permanent righteousness will rule all people. That's God's goal for the restoration of Israel is that his rule of righteousness will govern all nations. And it says here also that Yahweh's word to do this is more enduring and certain than the earth itself. And specifically here it is his word about establishing righteousness. In the end, it won't be Babylon's idolatrous, relative, ever-changing morality that triumphs, it will be Yahweh's righteousness. So exiled Israel, who are despairing in their exile, need to set their eyes on the bigger, long-term plan and future that God has for them. And as we read this, think about this. We know with certainty that Babylon has been demolished for centuries, actually millennia. And the writings of the Babylonian prophets and social commentators are in museums around the world, but no one actually consults them. No one listens to them or believes them anymore. But here we are reading Yahweh's word by Isaiah, and the whole earth needs this word, needs this light. Because in the end, Yahweh will rule all nations by his righteousness. And some of these phrases here go back to Isaiah 42 where we were introduced to the servant of Yahweh by whom he will achieve these things. Woven into the fabric of this passage is that the servant of Yahweh is fundamental to the accomplishment of these seemingly impossible outcomes. And verses 7 and 8 present the challenge for God's people which is to determine which side they're on. Who who do you identify with here? And that's why they're commanded to not fear the scheming, the mockery and despising of the people around them. And the reason they and us can do this, we're told here, is because the schemes of man are fragile and temporary. Whereas the other side of the coin is that his righteousness is forever. See, what will our current cultural fads now look like from the perspective of a 100 years? And even more importantly, from the perspective of living under the uncontested rule of Christ. It's all going to change, isn't it? And again, this uses the language of the servant songs. The righteous remnant in Israel are inseparably identified in the righteousness of the servant. Somehow his righteousness will be the basis of the righteousness of God's people. So we cooperate with what God is doing. We act in light of what God has done, is doing, And will do. But we're not spectators, as Israel weren't spectators. We are participants. And the primary command here to Israel in Babylon, to anyone who fears the culture around them, is stop fearing people, which leads to inactivity, silence, an unwillingness to publicly identify with Yahweh's servant. The next section, verses 51 from verse 9 to 16, this actually addresses Yahweh himself. And it asks that he rouse himself, that he get riled up to act again in this Exodus-like manner. And we see this very clearly, verses 9 to 11. This is using the language of the time where the exodus from Egypt was a triumph over the chaotic and dark forces and gods that rule or so-called ruled the ancient world. Yahweh governs all things, including the sea, through which he made a way to redeem his people from Egypt. So he will do it again, verse 11. His people will return to Zion with joy and gladness. A joy and gladness which can be celebrated in anticipation. And this is also our experience to some extent, isn't it? Though we have much greater reason for joy and gladness given that the servant of Yahweh has come and brought the ultimate exodus from our slavery. So we rejoice now in what Yahweh has done by his servant to create the foundations of a new Jerusalem, and we would rejoice in the certainty of what is yet to come. And Yahweh is not just powerful to do this, because power alone is not enough. He is gracious and faithful to use his power to do it. Verses Psalm twelve to sixteen. He cares about those who are bowed down by the oppression of the idolatrous rule of humanity. He cares about the distress of his people, who cannot see a way forward in the despair of Babylonian exile. So to comfort these people, he says, firstly, stop being afraid of people around you. They die like grass. But I am Yahweh. I am who I am. The God who made all things and you are the objects of my particular care. The promise here is that it is despair and sorrow that will flee from God's people. There's no possible way his word can fail to bring about the gathering of his people to this new Zion. The fundamental problem here is that they have forgotten who their God is. They've been deceived by the superficial appearance of culture and human boasting. And you could imagine the taunts, couldn't you, from the Babylonians, are oh, your gods useless? That's why you're here, being subject to us. But they've forgotten who their god is. They've forgotten that this is not the final and permanent arrangement and the rest of this passage from 17 to the end verse 17 to the uh, end of 52 12 addresses the people themselves who belong to Jerusalem as their true home and it addresses them particularly concerning how they need to respond to this And so Israel are to rouse themselves. They've asked Yahweh to rouse himself to act in this exodus-like manner, but they're now to rouse themselves to act in light of Yahweh's word and promises. And the first part of this we can see, verses 17 to 23, where the opening phrase, repeated for emphasis is wake up Jerusalem and stand up. Stop lying down in the dust. And the reason they can do this is because Yahweh's covenant discipline of Babylonian exile is about to end. It's just about over. And there are a couple of very important metaphors that are used here to describe this. Firstly, the idea of the cup of God's wrath is a very important one. And this is embellished by expressions such as the cup of staggering drunk to its dregs. The idea is that God's anger against human offensive uh, wickedness and evil is that God's anger is like a cup that's poured out. And it causes people to stagger under its weight or effect. We all know alcohol affects people. Well, the cup filled with God's anger affects people. And it manifests in things like destruction, famine, sword, despair. And there are, what's emphasised here, verse 18, is there's no human means to escape this cup. If you do think you can get advice from Jonah see if Yahweh is against you there's no escape from that another image verse 20 is an antelope caught in a net which represents the fear of being trapped by people of destructive intent It brings on a faint-hearted paralysis at the might of Babylon. And again, this cannot be disconnected from being filled with the anger and rebuke of their God. But, verse 21 to 23, there's always a but in the Bible. Gloriously described here is the removal of this cup from Israel and the removal of its consequences. This is where why those who belong to Jerusalem can wake up and stand up because that cup is now taken from them. There's no human possibility to escape this, but Yahweh himself will now remove it. Because verse 23 this is one of the many things, or describes uh, one of the many things that Yahweh does for his people, which is he pleads their cause. He acts for them in some sort of legal sense. And verse 23, like in the original Exodus redemption and the removal of wrath from Israel, It will mean that it will be expressed against those who oppose God's people. And what is explained here is vitally important for understanding Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did did he mean when he prayed, Father, take this cup from me? Well, he meant this cup. Of Isaiah. He meant the cup of God's anger from which there are no human means of escape, which is the cup that he took on himself. Because there was no other way, which is also what he prayed, isn't there? If if it be your will. Take this cup from me, but your will be done. And it was God's will that he bear this cup for us. See, it's no coincidence that this whole passage is sandwiched between the final two servant songs. The suffering servant will take this anger On himself. And as you'll see next time, we will wrongly initially interpret this as this servant being stricken by God for his own vile sinfulness. But Isaiah will teach us that it's not, that in reality he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So if Yahweh's cup of anger is now emptied, what happens next? Verse Chapter 52, verses 1 and 2. You get up and go back to the holy city. Again, Israel are told to awake. Get up. But this time not to awake and stand, but awake and put on strength and garments suitable for the renewed holy Jerusalem. Ultimately, this Jerusalem will be free from the unclean and the idolatrous Gentile. Get out of the dust, take off your shackles, and get dressed for the new Jerusalem, the ultimate home of God's people. Then verses 3 to 6, two things are rectified when this new exodus takes place back to the holy city. Firstly, verses 3 and 4, they were sold into slavery for nothing, so they will be redeemed for nothing. In the ancient world, the idea of redemption is that if you pay the price for the release of a slave, they can be freed from their slavery. Such is Yahweh that he will redeem them without cost to them. In just a couple of chapters time, you will read Isaiah's appeal for people to leave Babylon for Zion and he will say to them, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Then verses 5 to 6, another problem rectified is that the name of Yahweh is now in tatters. Remember, the Babylonians think their gods have won, that that Yahweh is not up to it. So, verse 5 the exile to Babylon caused the wailing of Israel's rulers, but because Yahweh has attached his name or reputation to his people, the exile damaged that reputation in the eyes of many. The wailing and lament of the rulers is a reflection on the name of Yahweh and his apparent failure to stop the exile from taking place. Remember, one of the big problems in the exile was that people were saying, Yahweh is a has-been. The Babylonian gods won. But verse 6, the new exodus, will rectify that falsehood. It will reveal the name Yahweh in greater glory and self-revelation, as did the original Exodus. So verses 7 to 10 describe this return to Zion and what it means. And firstly, verse 7, it is great news. It is literally the gospel. Beautiful are the feet on the mountains who bring the gospel. The idea here is that this great news is being faithfully announced by a herald as he runs to the city where the watchmen see him coming and receive this gospel, this good news. So what's this gospel or great news according to Isaiah? Isaiah. It is that Yahweh has bared his holy arm to bring salvation, redeem his people in a new exodus salvation from Babylonian exile to return them to a renewed Zion. And there's a tension reflected in all of this. Yahweh will act in his exodus power, but in believing that Israel need to act accordingly they should publicly and purposefully align themselves with him as for us we don't need to cower in the corner because Yahweh is our God we can wake up and stand rejoice now even though you are Still in Babylon because the return to Zion is a sure thing. And one more fundamental action or response is required from Israel here, which is verses 11 to 12. When the time comes, they must leave Babylon. And all that it represents, they must leave behind and return to Zion. That is physically what they must do. Now, this isn't as obvious as it sounds. You'd think, oh, of course we would. But when the time came, less than half did. See, Babylon was economically great. It was prosperous, it was comfortable. People had eked out a nice life there. So, when the call to physically re- return to Zion came, not all took that opportunity. And going back to Jerusalem was going to be difficult. But the logic is of course that if this is all true that Yahweh's word is faithful then the only choice is to leave Babylon for Zion. This this is like the implication of these truths. Go back and be part of the Zion rebuild because this is where the ultimate future is. See, anyone who knows about investment does that, don't they? They look where the future is and invest in it. Where's the future? As a pastor, my fellow pastor in, at Druin Prezi said at a service recently, your future in this world is a very small room next to very quiet neighbours on the outskirts of town. Think about it six foot under the ground if that helps (laughs) see the ultimate future is Zion the new Zion invest in it now Isaiah 40 to 55 is a distinct unit and we're getting to the end of it things are intensifying In the New Testament, we read a passage from Corinthians and the Corinthians were notorious for failing to understand how Jesus as the suffering servant of Yahweh reshapes our understanding of the world and our priorities in it. And how the gospel helps us see through the culture in which we live. What the Corinthians were doing was trying to do what many people many more people now are trying to do which is interpret the cross interpret the suffering servant who bears the wrath of god and interpret his word by the culture and to this paul says depart babylon See through the superficial claims and temporary grandness of culture. The Lord Jesus Christ is the centre of the universe. That is where the future is. So if you want to know God in all his glory, by the name Yahweh by which he revealed himself, then look to his son who wrought this extraordinary new exodus salvation that delivers us from our enslavement and he did this by taking on himself the cup of anger that was ours. Let me um, pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for this word of Isaiah to your despairing people in their enslavement. Uh, in their despair of not being able to see the future of your word and promises and how they might come about. Uh, We pray that you would help us now by your spirit as we look back uh, to see that you are indeed faithful and powerful to achieve your purposes. But help us to see that our bigger problem is not political or social, But it's that by nature we're blind, dumb and deaf as Israel, your servant. And that we need to be freed from this greater enslavement by the ministry of the servant of Yahweh who took on himself the cup of anger that was ours. Help us to grasp these truths deeply And to live in this culture with uh, boldness and trust in you as our God and in the faithfulness of your word. Because we pray and ask it for Jesus' sake and glory. Amen.